Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. As we continue our series through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. Before we read God's word, I invite you to bow with me as, as we ask for the Spirit's anointing this morning. Lord God, as we come together, Lord, under the authority of your word, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, as we begin to think about the, the difficult doctrine of your wrath, as Paul lays it before us this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding, at least to the, the best that, that we can with our limited, finite minds. May your word be planted deep in us, O Lord, that it may bear fruit of change that would be for our good and for your glory. And so do your work with, within us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Just to refresh your memories, we left off last week by looking at the righteousness of God from verse 17, which we uh, saw was the righteousness that God gives to his people, the, how, we are, how we are made right with God, that we are justified by faith alone. And we saw how that's part of the, the glory of the gospel, the reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel that he presents. And so Paul picks that up in verse 18, and there is a link between verses 17 and verse 18, uh, there's the Greek word gar for beginning in, in verse 18, so it's showing that there is a link between verse 17 and 18, which is significant because we can't really fully appreciate the beauty of the gospel without seeing the darkness of the wrath of God from which the gospel rescues us. So verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You may be seated. On September 2nd, 1990, the Watkins family traveled from Provo, Utah to New York City to watch the U.S. Open tennis matches. 
And uh, they were a family of four, a uh, 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 father and mother and two young adult sons. And as they were standing on the uh, platform in the subway station, they were attacked by a band of teenagers. The father was slashed with a knife and the mother was, beat, uh, was uh, pushed down on the ground and was getting kicked repeatedly again and again in the face. And when the older son stepped in and, uh, to intervene and to defend his mom, he was stabbed in the chest and killed. A judge sentenced the attackers to life in prison without parole. And he issued a strong statement as he made his sentence, uh, lamenting in his words a society in which a band of marauders can kill a boy in front of his parents and then stride up the block and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had merely stepped on an insect. Such acts, he said, were a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. And such acts, he said, cannot go unpunished. It was a strong statement from a judge who was rightly angry at the evil that had been done and who, and who was determined to uphold justice. In Romans 1, we encounter a God of wrath, a God who, like a just judge, cannot and, and will not let evil go unpunished. As we enter into the text this morning, we will ex explore three questions in relation to this difficult doctrine of God's wrath. And, and, and it is a difficult doctrine, isn't it? I mean, if anybody says that they have a full grasp of the wrath of God and it has really no causes, no issues or problems for them, I don't think they fully understand what the wrath of God really is. We, we, it is one of those things that I think in the end that we as finite humans have to simply accept and embrace as part of the divine, sovereign mystery of our living creator, God. And we will not fully, I don't think, in this earth reconcile his wrath and as part of his loving character. So, as we enter into the text, three questions in relation to the doctrine of God's wrath. Number one, what does Paul mean by the wrath of God? Number two, why is it being revealed? And then number three, uh, how does it impact believers? So first, what, is, what does Paul mean by the wrath of God? And, and more specifically, what does Paul mean by the wrath of God in the context of, of Romans? Well, the, the, the wrath of God is not the arbitrary, impulsive, self-serving kind of rage that so often characterizes human anger, right? That, that's one of the problems we have with the wrath of God is that we project back into the doctrine uh, our own version of wrath and anger, which is this irrational, impulsive, kind of fly-off-the-handle sort of rage. God is not a God who flies off the handle and smites people uh, in arbitrary fits of rage, Leon Morris uh, captures the biblical meaning of wrath well when he says the wrath of God is not so much a sudden flaring up of passion which is soon over as it is a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. And so the, the wrath of God is intrinsic to his being. It is a necessary byproduct of his holiness. As a just judge who is supremely holy and pure and good, he is necessarily opposed to all that is evil. 
It's in his being. It's in his nature. It's part of who he is. As John Murray put it, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. In the context of Romans, Paul uses the wrath of God against sin as a backdrop against which to display the bright jewel of the gospel. And I think that's important to understand that we we cannot fully appreciate the wonder of the gospel without first seeing why we need it. Why do we need the gospel? We, We can't appreciate our salvation without knowing that from which we have been saved. When the power goes out in your home, is it did for us earlier this summer, and you spend hours fumbling about in the darkness. What a welcome relief it is when the power comes back on and the lights come back on. And you're filled with renewed appreciation and thankfulness for those things that you so easily take for granted. And that's really what Paul is doing here in Romans. He is letting us fumble around in the darkness to feel the weight of God's wrath against human sin and wickedness that we may be filled with renewed wonder and gratitude over the glory of the gospel. And we also see in Romans that the wrath of God has both a present and a future manifestation. So God will unleash the fullness of his wrath in the final judgment in the last day. We see that pretty clearly throughout Scripture that we're familiar with that. The wrath of God, the day of God's wrath is coming and it will be revealed. It will be exercised in fullness at the last day. We see a glimpse of this future manifestation of his wrath in Revelation chapter 6 where John has a vision of the people of earth hiding in caves and hiding among rocks of the mountains. And John says, they called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand and so we know that future aspect of his wrath but as paul says in our text this morning the wrath of god is not just something that is held in reserves for the future it manifests itself in smaller ways even now paul says the wrath of god in the present tense, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So even now, God's wrath is being revealed. Even now, God is exercising judgment against the wickedness of the world. And as we'll see next week, God is exercising this judgment and wrath by, this is the the how, this is the, the means by which he's doing it, by handing sinners over to themselves by letting their own stubborn and rebellious hearts take them down the road of moral depravity and all of its tragic consequences. This is the revelation of God's wrath from heaven. And it explains why, for Paul and for us, why the world is so distorted and disfigured as it is. You see, Paul shows us in these verses not only that the world is disfigured and a distorted mess, But he shows us why the world is this way. The world is a mess, Paul says, because the Holy One is judging the wickedness of the world. And that brings us to our second question. Why is the wrath of God being revealed against the wicked? 
And before we go much farther in answering that question, I should say that I believe Paul is, in, in chapter 1 here, in these verses, primarily addressing unbelieving Gentiles. There, there's some discussion as to, who, is he talking about all of humanity? Is he talking about the Jews? Is he talking about the Gentiles? And I think that the, the, a very strong case is made that he's talking specifically about Gentiles in these verses. He's talking about the pagans of his day, the godless Gentiles, the, the atheists, the agnostics, the secularists, the humanists. But then in chapter 2, while the Jews are all sort of fist-bumping and shouting their amens as Paul brings his indictment against the Gentiles, uh, Paul turns the tables and, and brings his indictment against the Jews and saying that, God's, that they also are under God's wrath. And so in the end, all of humanity is under the power of sin, Paul says, and deserving of God's wrath. But now back to our question why is the wrath of God being revealed against the unbelieving world, against the, the godless and the pagans? What, what, what is it about them that, that makes them culpable and deserving of God's wrath? Or, you know, so what, what, re, what are the reasons that, why is God doing this? Well, Paul identifies two things at the heart of their unbelief, two reasons why God's wrath is being revealed against the wicked. The first reason is that they suppress the truth about God. Though God is the creator of all things, they, they fail to glorify him and honor him as God. They, they do not worship him. They do not give thanks to him. They do not humble themselves before him in, in awe of their creator. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he goes on to reveal that what he means by suppressing the truth is refusing to embrace the truth about God. He says, for although they knew God, and that they knew God, as we'll see, through uh, all of God's creation, they're able to know God through his general revelation. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Well, you see, this is the fundamental problem at the heart of unbelief. It is a rejection of God, a dismissal of the truth about God, a refusal to honor him and to acknowledge him as God. And we see, of course, we see this all around us in, in, in secularism, don't we? And, and, and there's, there's voices constantly that are sending this message to us, just... I'll give you just a couple. We see this sentiment in the words of the renowned late comedian George Carlin, who was also a very vocal atheist. And at one point he said, All the prayers that I used to offer to God and all the prayers that I now offer to Joe Pesci are being answered at about the same 50% rate. Half the time I get what I want, half the time I don't. It's the same as the four-leaf clover and the horseshoe. It's all the same. So just pick your superstition, sit back, make a wish, and enjoy yourself. That is the voice of the godless. In his book, The God Delusion... Richard Dawkins says there is something infantile in the presumption that someone else, in other words, God, has a responsibility to give your life meaning and point. The truly adult view, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and as wonderful as we choose to make it. He goes even farther in his rejection of God, saying that God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. 
Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, capriciously malevolent bully. Well, these are just a couple of voices among a whole chorus of people who suppress the truth about God, as Paul says. They don't glorify him as God or, or give thanks to him. They're not moved to worship him or to trust in him. Their thinking has become futile. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Though they claim to be wise, they are fools. And Paul says they're without excuse because God has revealed enough of himself in his creation to move all people to worship him and humble themselves before him as their creator. Paul says, What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, all of creation puts on display the eternal power and the divine nature of its creator. The fingerprint of God is woven into the entire fabric of creation, that the glory of God is stitched into all that he has made so that all who observe any part of it can behold the wonder and majesty of their creator. As the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. I I love that expression. Day after day, day in and day out, on and on, without fail, continuously, creation is pouring forth speech, speaking of the glory of its creator. Night after night, again and again, over and over, they are revealing knowledge about who God is. Knowledge enough to worship him, to humble yourself before him as creator. It is like this continual stream of of speech and knowledge. Just look around, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you see it. There's a constant chorus from the frogs chirping at night to the microscopic flowers that coat the desert floor. You see the image of the divine in the sunsets that paint the evening sky. You see it in the billions of stars that bedazzle the night and in the intricate web of a spider glistening in the morning dew. You see it in the complex design of the human eye. You see it in the wing of the butterfly and the waggle of the honeybee dancing out a message to fellow bees about a food source, including in its little waggle dance, not only the sugar content of that food source, but also the precise direction and distance to get there, communicating in a language known only to the bees themselves and the God who made them. When I behold the wonders of God's creation, I can't help but think that it takes far more faith to believe that this all came to be by chance than it does to believe it came to be by God's design. What folly to gaze upon all this artistry and not be moved to honor the artist. 
what darkened hearts and futile thinking to dwell in the theater of God's glory and fail to glorify him as God or give thanks to him. James Boyce said there is enough evidence of God in a flower to lead a child as well as a scientist to worship him. There's sufficient evidence in a grain of sand to make us glorify God and thank him. How foolish to miss it. As Paul said, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people because they suppress the truth about him. Or maybe a more accurate translation would be that they attempt to suppress the truth about him because his truth cannot, in the end, be suppressed. But they do not acknowledge him as creator. They do not worship him or give thanks to him as their God. And they are without excuse because they live in the theater of his glory and yet fail to glorify him. Day after day, night after night, the creation is constantly revealing his nature, his eternal power, his divine nature, and yet they refuse to see it. The second reason why God is revealing his wrath against the godless is because they exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. So not only do they suppress the truth about God, failing to worship and glorify him as God, but they, they worship created things in his place. Paul says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, at the, at the heart of unbelief is the folly of idolatry. It is the epitome of stupidity to be shown the infinite worth of God's glory and to exchange it uh, for an utterly worthless collection of idols. It's like trading a Ferrari even up for a Fiesta. It is the stupidest thing. As God said through the prophet Isaiah, with whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. In other words, do you, do you see how foolish this is? It's just a block of wood or a little hunk of metal coated with, with, with other metal, something fashioned by human hands, and you're going to worship that fabricated thing over the living God? As God goes on, to say through the prophet, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Did that idol on your shelf create them? Did he mark them off with the breath of his hand? Did he speak all of creation into existence? Who created all of these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. How foolish it is to exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. And yet in our human nature, we are tempted to do this very thing all the time. We, we may not have those wooden blocks or those metal hunks, but we have, we have idols no less foolish than the people of Israel. 
You see, idolatry is putting any created thing above God or in place of God. And the created thing that we in our fallen nature put before God all the time is ourselves. The language that Paul uses here in Romans 1 is an echo of the language in Genesis 1. Did you notice that? Three times Paul makes reference to glory and image and likeness and then the reference to reptiles and birds and animals. It is an echo of Genesis 1. Paul seems to be conveying the idea that the idolatry of the wicked is a repeat of the fall of Adam. It is putting oneself in the place of God all over again. It is a stubborn and rebellious refusal to accept your place as creature, humbly dependent on God, and it is a grasping to put yourself in God's place instead. Take the fruit and you will be like God, the serpent said in the garden. Just take it. Take it and and don't you want to be like God? Wouldn't it be better to be here instead of here? You can have it. Take the fruit. Go from here to here, and you will be like God. And that has been the temptation of the human heart ever since. Tim Keller said, when people refuse to acknowledge God as God, we do not stop worshiping. We simply change the object of our worship. We, we must worship something. We're all built these as to worship something. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to in order to calm our deepest fears. And for most, the object of worship is ourselves. I read an article recently by an orthopedic surgeon saying that more and more people are coming in with a form of carpal tunnel that's caused by hyperflexion of the wrist from taking too many selfies. He has, actually, there's a name for it. He calls it selfie wrist. There is actually a thing called selfie wrist because we are such self, self-consumed creatures that we disfigure our wrist taking pictures of ourselves. It seems to me that this tells us something about the real object of worship for so many in the world. God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people because they have exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for lifeless, finite idols. They try to find their ultimate satisfaction in created things rather than in the creator. Now, I know our time is almost up, and I want to just very briefly turn our attention to the third question, and it will be very brief. Where does all of this leave us as believers? How does the wrath of God impact us? Well, Paul is going to develop an answer to that question throughout his letter as the letter unfolds, but I at least want to give a little preview to his answer. So Paul says in Romans 3 verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. I kind of, I prefer the translation, a propitiation, which is a word that refers to the removal of God's wrath. So uh, God uh, presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a removal of God's wrath through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. At the cross, the the undiluted wrath of our sin-hating God fell upon his sin-bearing son. 
Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God against sin, against the sin of those who believe. He was our substitute. He willingly bore in his own body the punishment of God's wrath that our sin deserves. He rescued us from the wrath of God by taking it upon himself. And so Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Believers are saved from God's wrath against sin through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it is so important for us to, to hold on to this doctrine because it is being challenged, is being uh, surrendered uh, even in evangelical circles today. People denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ and, and trying to find a different, uh, a different way to, to think about our forgiveness and to think about our relationship with God. But well, we do to remember and to remain firmly grounded in this beautiful and mysterious doctrine of Scripture. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, we live. We see in the cross the seriousness of sin and the measure of God's wrath against it. And so may we, may we never treat forgiveness like some cheap gesture. It is as costly as the cross. The theologian Todd Billings once said, a God without wrath is a God who whitewashes evil and is deaf to the cries of the powerless. A God without wrath is a God who whitewashes evil and is deaf to the cries of the powerless. The God of the Bible is not a God without wrath. As Paul says, he is a God who is even now revealing his wrath against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. A God who will not let evil win like a just judge. And a God who mercifully spares his chosen people from his wrath through the willing sacrifice of his son. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response, oh Lord, show us and teach us, O oh Lord, the, to the extent that we are able to understand it, the weight of your wrath against sin and against wickedness, against evil, that we may see anew, O oh Lord, the wonder and the beauty of the gospel that saves us from the horror of that wrath. Lord, hear our silent prayers as we come before you this morning.
Oh, Lord, what an amazing and unfathomable gift we've been given at the cross where the Lamb of God was slain for us, where the rock of ages secured for us through faith in Christ alone. A status of righteousness rescuing us from your just wrath against sin. Oh Lord, may we see it. May we be filled with wonder and gratitude and thankfulness. And may we never stop worshiping you and honoring you and glorifying you as our creator. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.